0: We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hope your day is going well. had a great day yesterday. Temperature was nice. Got outdoors a little bit. You got to make the most out of those days in Minnesota because before you know it, it's fucking winter again and you're locked inside and you only go outside to run to the store or something. But the next few, three, four months are going to be very nice in Minnesota. So I'm going to make the most of it. Um... We got some news today from the Justice Department, and this is kind of big news, actually. The Justice Department on Monday charged the head of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, and four other leaders with seditious conspiracy in the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack, escalating the criminal case against the far-right extremist group. Now, these are the most aggressive charges brought by the Justice Department against the Proud Boys and are the first allegations by prosecutors that the group tried to oppose by force the presidential transfer of power. Tario and his co-defendants previously pleaded not guilty to an earlier slate of charges. So they had other charges, but now these new seditious conspiracy charges. These are pretty serious charges. We're talking about sedition. We're talking about 20-year sentences. So they are in some deep shit. Now, the new indictment adds fresh details about what Proud Boy leaders said on January 6, 2021. Prosecutors accuse the five defendants of working together to intimidate members of Congress and law enforcement and prompt them to flee, thereby preventing them from performing their official duties. Prosecutors reveal Theriot's text messages from January 6th, where he appears to compare the attack on the U.S. Capitol to the Winter Palace, the home of the Russian emperor. What the fuck does that mean? Which was stormed during the Russian Revolution in 1917. In the text, Terrio appears to comment on Congress being evacuated from the chambers, unable to certify the Electoral College vote. An unnamed person texts Terrio, dude, did we just influence history? Prompting Terrio to respond, let's first see how this plays out. Before the Senate resumes certifying the presidential vote, the unnamed person writes back, they have to certify today or it's invalid. Now, the four men charged alongside Terrio in the indictment are Ethan Nordine, the sergeant at arms of the Proud Boys, and the president of a local chapter, Joseph Biggs, a self-described organizer of the Proud Boys, Uh, Zachary Rell, who runs the Philadelphia chapter of the Proud Boys, and Dominic Pozzola, a New York Proud Boy who goes by the name of Spaz. Well, of course he does. (laughs) All five were previously indicted on less serious conspiracy charges. The defendants are set to be in court later this week. they got to be nervous. Those lesser charges weren't a big deal, but sedition? Well, that's a fucking problem. Lawyers for Nordine, Rell, Pozzola, and Biggs have maintained in courts that their clients had no plan when they walked to the Capitol on January 6th, while Terrio's lawyers have stressed that the client, uh, client left Washington on January 5th after being arrested for burning a church's Black Lives Matter banner in December of 2020. That's right. Terrio wasn't even at the Capitol on January 6th. Now, Rell responded to the new charge with his defense attorney, Carmen Hernandez, writing in a court filing Monday night that the new indictment does not allege that Mr. Rell used force at any time, nor encouraged anyone to do so. The worst that has been alleged against Mr. Rell is that he has associated himself with the Proud Boys, a lawful fraternal association as is his right protected by the First Amendment, Hernandez said adding that to bring such serious charges against Mr. Rell at this late date without alleging a single new fact against him is simply wrong and deserves a response. (laughs) Rell has pleaded not guilty to his previous January 6 related charges in court and like the others in the case has not had the opportunity to yet respond formally in court to the sedition charge. The latest developments come after Charles Donahoe, a proud boy from North Carolina, pleaded guilty in April and agreed to cooperate with the investigation. He was not named in Monday's indictments. The Justice Department has brought one other seditious conspiracy case, the gravest charge to emerge from the Capitol attack against the leaders of the Oath Keepers, who are accused of extensively planning, preparing for violence On January 6th, now prosecutors have already secured three guilty pleas to seditious conspiracy in that case. So you see what's going on here? These guys were charged with lesser crimes and they thought that's all that would happen. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seditious conspiracy, which is a serious fucking crime. Like the lawyer said, how did that change? You didn't even tell us this was coming. Could it have something to do with Charles Donahoe pleading guilty and agreeing to cooperate? (laughs) Throwing these fucking clowns under a bus? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the case. And here's the thing that you have to understand. Seditious conspiracy doesn't have to involve being one of the people Charging at the Capitol, breaking in and doing all the damage inside the Capitol? It's about conspiracy. So what does that tell you? Well, conspiracy suggests that they were planning, strategizing, facilitating, implementing, getting ready for the event. Like I said earlier, Terrio wasn't even at the Capitol on January 6th. The cops took him out of the picture because they arrested him for some offense he had in December of 2020. So, Terrio wasn't there, so how can they charge him? Again, it goes back to that word conspiracy. It's not about the actual act, it's about the plans leading up to the act. Now, here's the other thing interesting to think about. If they can charge Enrique Terrio with seditious conspiracy, and he wasn't at the event because it suggests the planning for the event That would mean anybody that helped Enrique Terrio plan, strategize, facilitate, and implement the event would also be guilty of seditious conspiracy. Well, who could I be talking about? Well, we know there's a lot of sitting members of Congress that were buddies with these guys, had meetings with these guys, gave these guys tours. So if Enrique Terrio can be charged with seditious conspiracy. It seems to make sense that those people that helped him, that happened to be sitting in Congress, could very well be just as guilty of seditious conspiracy. And here's the wonderful thing. The January 6th committee will be having its first televised hearing on Thursday regarding the January 6th insurrection. Now, they're addressing the attack, but they're also addressing people who were involved with the planning of it. They know that there are some sitting members of council that were part of the plan. So this January 6th committee is going to do what? They're going to expose who was part of it. They're going to tell us where, when, and how these sitting members of Congress were in league with the Proud Boys. There's got to be some nervous Congress members of Congress right now just waiting for Thursday or the next one on the 13th. There's going to be eight different hearings on television in just the month of June. That's all the schedules they've released, but there's likely to be some in July, August, and September as well with a final wrap-up probably late September, maybe early October. And all will be exposed. And when I say all will be exposed, all those members of Congress that were part of this insurrection are going to be exposed too. So these folks aren't going to get off. I had somebody tell me just in a TikTok post said, oh, nothing's going to happen to the members of Congress. Oh, I fucking disagree. I mean, They've let people go because of smaller crimes, because it might cause too much trouble. But the fact of the matter is, is when somebody tries to overthrow the country, regardless of what their position is, that's going to cause some problems. They almost have to indict these people in order to keep our country safe, because if they don't indict those people, then that leaves the door open for anybody else that fucking wants to, to try to overthrow our government. This is crucial for the safety and the future of this country. Yes, they're going to do something. You can whine and cry and say, oh, nothing's ever going to happen, but a lot of shit has already happened. And you won't have any idea how big these hearings are going to be. They are going to be huge. There's going to be a lot exposed and brought to light. And it's going to change a lot of perceptions in this country. We got another story here. The Trump campaign directed a group of Georgia Republicans to meet in secret and obscure their objectives in an email obtained by the federal prosecutors as part of the recent investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election in several swing states. Now, the email is part of the intensifying Justice Department investigation. I know you say they're not doing anything, but they're digging deep into a lot of shit, and this is one of those things. They're focused on the Trump campaign's interaction with so-called alternate Republican electors in states that Trump lost and whether a scheme to organize them could be charged as a crime. Now, the Georgia email has not been disclosed publicly until now. It was sent by Robert Sinners, Trump's Election Day operations lead, in Georgia on December 13th of 2020, 18 hours before the group of alternate electors gathered at the Georgia State Capitol, according to the multiple sources who were familiar with it. Now, this in itself is illegal, but what these dumb fucks don't realize, these guys that were playing cosplay electors are in trouble, too. What they were doing was illegal, and they are now... Learning that phrase, fuck around and find out, because some of these are being investigated and ultimately indicted. I must ask you for your complete discretion in this process, Sinners wrote. Your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump, but will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion. So if everything they were doing was above board and honest and in line with the Constitution, why does it have to be secret? Yeah, because it's fucking wrong, because it's criminal. The Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney's Office, which has seated its own grand jury, we've talked about that, to investigate Trump's attempt. to overturn the election results in Georgia, and the U.S. House Select Committee on January 6th have also obtained copies of the email, according to sources familiar with that situation. So the the email underscores the Trump campaign's role in creating false election documents as a way to supplant George, uh, Joe Biden's win in Georgia, that... Uh, Trump campaign officials oversaw efforts to put forward legitimate electors in seven swing states. I said legitimate. I meant illegitimate electors in seven swing states that Trump lost. The Washington Post also reported on the email Monday, one source familiar with the campaign said the secrecy was needed uh, because of restricted access at the statehouse during the coronavirus pandemic and post-election political tumult. The need to meet at the statehouse was paramount to make the fake elector slate potentially viable under the law if Biden's win were to be blocked. Now, the Trump campaign and the Georgia GOP didn't respond to requests for comment this week. Oh, really? <laughs> There's a guy on CNN, Ellie Honig. You've probably seen him. He's a senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. Noted that the email could become part of a conspiracy investigation because it could show the scheme went beyond idle chatter and instead involved the campaign giving electors specific direction. He also noted the uh, significance of asking electors to conceal their actions. A prosecutor would argue to a jury why the secrecy. What are they hiding? Honig said, "I said that earlier. I should be a prosecutor." <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, it is troublesome to see all this stuff come to light, and everything is going to raise to the top with these uh, January 6th committee hearings. You're going to hear a lot of information you haven't heard before, and they're also going to take this evidence and tie it all together so it makes sense. Like I've said before, when they attacked the Capitol, we thought, well, it was just a rogue crowd of people that went after it because they were angry. But then when you step back and look around and see all the things that were going on, the fake electors, the attempt to coerce secretaries of state, all these things going on, you know, the recounts, the audits, the election fraud claims. This was a really a concerted effort to do this, which makes it all that much more criminal. When they can see that there was, in fact, a conspiracy with this thing, that makes it more problematic. And I think that's what we're going to see with the January 6th committee when they come out with all their evidence. We've got a lot of bits and pieces, pieces that are kind of egregious, troublesome, and certainly illegal. But we've only seen a smidgen, I like that word, smidgen of what is to come out. The Democrats and the January 6th committee know they have to make a big splash on that first hearing. And they will. The subsequent hearings, I heard, this is going to be prime time, but subsequent hearings will be run during the day. It won't matter. People will still be watching intently, and those that can't watch will hear the highlights in the news later on in the evening. But this is going to be a constant press on the Democrats, or on the Republicans by the Democrats, and it's going to be a big problem for the Republicans. I've been warning about you about this for some time, and you can bet that it is going to be a problem. And uh, this is not going to bode well for the uh, for the Republicans come the midterms. Now I've heard some people say to me, they've been saying, uh, "Well, you know what's going to happen." The Supreme Court is going to come out with an announcement, a decision on the Roe v. Wade on Thursday just to drown them out. And I suppose that's possible. But here are the problems with that. The Supreme Court already has all kinds of problems. They haven't even started to be pressed on those issues. And one of the problems they're particularly sensitive to is being perceived as political or partisan. Once they become political and partisan, they aren't the Supreme Court anymore. They don't have the power they once had. So for them to actually offer up that decision on the same day of the first um, J6 hearing on television would essentially... Verify that they are political and are partisan, and because they're so sensitive to that, I, uh, I, you know, I just don't, I don't think they'll do that. That doesn't make any sense. That would be incredibly stupid. Now, while the Supreme Court might be partisan and political and corrupt, they certainly aren't stupid. They should know better than that. And I'll be honest: as much as maybe the Republic think they could, Donald Trump can't call up the Supreme Court and say, "I want you to do this now." That's never going to be allowed. They're not going to do that. <clears throat> now, theoretically, they are due to come up with a decision sometime, and theoretically it could be that Thursday. But if they do that, it's going to be bad for the Supreme Court. But here's the important thing to remember. Even if they do do that, and even if they're successful in drowning out that uh, hearing on June 9th, keep in mind, There's fucking seven more hearings in the month of June. There'll be a bunch in July, a bunch in August, a bunch in September. So try anything that they want to try, but they aren't going to be able to drown it out. I think we're worrying about something we don't need to worry about, even if it does happen. Uh, It's going to cause a stir. But you have to remember, too, by overturning Roe v. Wade, this is going to have an incredible impact, a negative impact on the Republicans come the midterms. So bring it, bitches. Anything to make you look bad, anything to make you lose the midterms, I'm here for it. Well, today is Tuesday, and you know what Tuesday is? It's primary day. And I think we have about seven states that have primaries, and many of those states will have candidates in the Republican primaries that Donald Trump has endorsed. Now, in California, which is an unusual system in which all parties' candidates compete on one ballot before advancing to a top, top runoff, there doesn't appear to be too much drama at the top of the ballot. Incumbent Gavin Newsom, on the heels of his landslide victory in last year's recall election, is in pretty good position to win a second term. Similarly, the Golden State's appointed Democratic U.S. Senator Alex Padilla and appointed Democratic Attorney General Rob Monta are very likely to do well tomorrow in advance to the general election. There are far more con- tev- competitive contests, however, at the congressional level. One of the races to keep an eye on is the 40th Congressional District where incumbent Representative Young Kim seen in GOP circles as a future star, is facing potential trouble from a far-right challenger. Now, in California's 22nd congressional district, meanwhile, incumbent representative David Valadeo is facing pushback for supporting Donald Trump's impeachment early last year. He was for it. He's facing a GOP challenger from the right Republican Chris Mathis, who's made Valadeo's position on impeachment the driving point of his candidacy. He's saying, he said he wanted to impeach Trump. Now I got to beat him. <laughs> A leading Democratic super PAC is trying to put its thumb on the scale, investing in ads, promoting Mathis. <laughs> you see what's going on there? It's exactly what I told you. The Democrats want the crazier motherfuckers to win these, uh, these nominations because they are going to be easier to beat. Now another competitive election appears to be unfolding in California's 37th where several credible contenders hope to succeed Democratic Rep Karen Bass who's running for mayor of Los Angeles. On a related note, Bass was initially seen as the front-runner run- in Los Angeles's mayoral race, but billionaire Rick Caruso has invested freely in his campaign and appears likely to finish in the top 2 of course another fucking billionaire that doesn't know anything about money other than money grabs there's going to be a primary in Iowa there's a surprisingly competitive Democratic U.S. Senate contest, despite the fact that incumbent Republican Senator Chuck Grassley is seen as a heavy favorite to keep the seat he first won during the Carter administration. The fucking Carter administration. He's in like his mid to late 80s. You talk about cognitive problems, not being able to keep track of where you are. Fucking Grassley is the epitome of that. Now, former Rep. Abby Finkenauer whose candidacy was briefly derailed during a ballot signature issue before being restored um, by the state Supreme Court, is arguably the most well-known candidate. Uh, But retired U.S. Navy Vice Admiral Mike Franken has made headway in recent months. Rural physician Glenn Hurst also seeking the Democratic nod. Now, down in Mississippi... In Mississippi, each of the Magnolia State's congressional incumbents will face primary rivals today, but only one appears to have something to worry about. In the 4th Congressional District, there are six GOP candidates taking on Republican incumbent Steve Palazzo, who's faced a series of ethics controversies. Oh no, a Republican with ethics problems. Who knew? In Montana, which will soon go from having one U.S. House representative to two, the race I'm, that seems the most interesting in, is in the state's newly created 1st District, where former inter, in, <clears throat> Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke is making a comeback bid. Zinke, of course, was one of the most scandal plague members of the Donald Trump team though it's unclear if that will help or hurt his candidacy. Yeah, he's corrupt. He's a fucking criminal. He worked for Donald Trump, and he's going to be the Republican candidate. And thank God for that. The crazier, the fucking better. In New Jersey, Republicans believe Democratic Representative uh, Tom Malinowski is vulnerable in the state's 7th Congressional District, and much of the party is rallied behind Tom Keene Jr., but he's facing some even more conservative rivals in a GOP primary. It's also worth kind of watching the first district where Democratic incumbent Donald Norcross is facing a spirited challenge from Mario DeSantis, who's pushing the incumbent from the left. Don't know if he's related to uh, Ronnie Boy down in Florida. In New Mexico, the race to watch is the GOP gubernatorial primary incumbent Democrat Governor Michelle Luan Grisham won easily four years ago, but Republicans see her as vulnerable this year, and there's a crowded field of contenders, former meteorologist, great. Mark Ronchetti, who ran a relatively competitive, failed U.S. Senate campaign two years ago, appears to be the frontrunner. Sure, what would make him a front runner more than losing a fucking Senate race? As we read these things, we see more and more that uh, most of the Republican candidates are just weak as fuck. And in South Dakota, it was just last year when Trump declared that incumbent Senator John Thune will be primaried in 2022. John Thune did something to piss off Donald Trump for reasons that never really made any sense. The former president added that the Republican senator's political career would soon be over. Tomorrow, Thune will face token GOP opposition, and in the general election, he'll be one of a limited number of 2022 incumbents to run unimposed. So if he can get by the primary, he's in, John Thune. And Donald Trump hates his ass, does not like John Thune. Primary day is always interesting because we'll see who Donald Trump has endorsed and if he still holds any sway. Now, I want you to understand something. People always say to me, Well, Donald Trump's uh, candidate won here and one here and one here. Don't worry about that. These are Republicans running against Republicans. It doesn't count for shit. And the crazier the candidates that come up to the nomination in the Republican Party, the better for the Democrats. You get these conspiracy theory spewing pieces of shit like Dr. Oz or some of these other ones, those are the people you want running against the Democrats because they're crazy. They're easy to expose their problems, their corruption. And when they do that, and trust me, they will do that, they are going to have a much harder time winning their election come November. Now, of course, some of these places are real heavily Republican, and they're going to vote Republican you know, if, if, if fucking Charles Manson was a Republican and running, that's just what they do. But there's going to be a lot of circumstances where they aren't going to win. And again, this is all about the midterms and all about what's about to come out with the January 6th committee. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, gun control. All these things are making the Republicans look bad. And not all Republicans agree with the uh, trump Lafuck party as to what they think should be done with these situations. It's going to be a hard choice for some of these Republican folks because they just don't want to join the shit show. I mean, it all will be exposed in time when the midterms happen, but I honestly believe the Democrats are going to do pretty well in the midterms because the Republicans are, in fact, a fucking shit show. All right, let's take a quick break, and uh, we will be right back. On every show, I tell you that if you have questions, comments, or complaints, just reach out to me at rationalboomer at gmail.com. Those emails come directly to me, and your input is crucial to this show. The show is called Rational Boomer Podcast, but that's not to suggest that I'm the rational boomer. I am not. I am simply a rational boomer. All of you are rational boomers. Anybody of a like mind is a rational boomer. Strength comes in numbers and not through an individual. You have perceptions and insights that may have never occurred to me. This isn't a show about me. This is a show about us and gaining a voice in this country. There's 70 million baby boomers in this country. Yeah, I know the younger folks would prefer to push us aside. Every generation has done that. But we are a formidable force if we can get together and speak in one voice. This is why I encourage you to let your friends and family know about the Rational Boomer podcast. Not to satisfy my ego, but to give us more power, a stronger voice to help right this ship we call the United States of America. Lastly, I'm offering the opportunity for my listeners to be on the show. Now, it could be two minutes, it could be a half hour, it could be the whole fucking show. I'd much rather have you on the show than somebody pimping a podcast or a book. I want to hear what you think. I want to know what you know. The Rational Boomer Podcast is all about us. So, did you hear that Elon Musk is threatening to walk away from his $44 billion bid to buy Twitter? Accusing the company of refusing to give him information about its spam bot and fake accounts. Lawyers for the Tesla and SpaceX CEO made the threat in a letter to Twitter dated Monday, and Twitter disclosed it in a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Is this a surprise to anybody? Elon Musk is wealthy, he's a billionaire, I get that. He's done Tesla, and he's done SpaceX, and he's been successful. But this guy is a fucking shitster. He does things for reasons I can't understand. You might remember uh, when the crypto coin, the Dogecoin, came out. He was all about it. He was in the middle of it. He invested in it. It brought the prices up high, and then he bailed on it and started talking shit about it. This is what he does. He enjoys having a certain amount of power and exercising this power. He knew if he went and wanted to buy Twitter, they'd resist, which they did. But then when it got deeper, they kind of resigned themselves to the fact that he's going to buy it. He made the offer of $44 billion. But now he's whining and crying about all the bots or the fake accounts on there. You would think, if you're a smart man, a genius, if you will, before you offer $44 billion to a company for something that's been around for a long time, has been successful for a long time, you might want to check some things out before you make that offer. I mean, you entered into the agreement, and the deal is, is if you back out, now you've got to give them a billion dollars for fucking nothing. You don't get Twitter. You just give him a billion dollars. Now, a billion dollars isn't a lot of money to Elon Musk. He's got hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's not a big deal. It's no skin off his nose. It's like you or I paying off a 100 bucks. It stings a little, but it's not a big deal. But so now he's talking about backing out. Why is he doing it? Is he just going in there to stir the shit and show how much power he has and maybe try to benefit on the, uh, the stock he already owns? I don't know. But Elon Musk ran into some problems. He thought he was a media darling. He thought everybody loved him and would always love him. But since the start of this attempt to take over Twitter, he's become more of a villain. And I don't think he likes being a villain. In fact, his own company, Tesla, which has been pretty successful, has lost more money in stock than the $44 billion Elon Musk is uh, willing to spend for Twitter. At least he was willing to spend for Twitter. When you look at your little charade being exposed and you start losing money hand over fist, maybe you say, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. This could fuck me up. This is not good. But here's what what I don't understand. You got a guy who's an alleged genius. He's a billionaire. You didn't foresee this. You're so arrogant. You're so narcissistic that you thought you can do anything and people would just love you. And now you're surprised that they don't love you. They hate your fucking guts. They know the kind of bullshit that you want to pull with Twitter. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think he ever had any intention of buying Twitter ever, ever, ever. I don't think he did. I think he was just playing some bullshit game like he tends to do and just to see what he can do to try to exercise some power. Well, now he wants to back out. It will be interesting to see if he has to pay that billion dollars to back out. But as far as Elon Musk goes, in my mind, fuck him. Who cares about him? All right, now, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia voiced his support Monday for raising the age to 21 for purchasing semi-automatic weapons and questioned why individuals needed to own high-powered AR-15-style weapons, putting him at odds with Republicans, which seems weird, who are resisting imposing any restrictions to access firearms. Now, I think I told you yesterday that there's been talk that um, one Democratic a representative said, We've never been closer to a bipartisan gun control deal. Yeah, right. We've heard this before. We've heard this kind of bullshit out of Mansion before. Um, I never thought I had a need for that type of high-capacity automatic weapon, Manchin said. I like to shoot. I like to go out and hunt. I like to go out sports shooting. I do all of that, but I have never felt a need or needed something of that magnitude. Manchin also said he wouldn't have a problem at looking at uh, backing a ban on so-called assault weapons, a proposal pushed by the White House and Democratic leaders. But that stands no chance of winning because they need 60 votes in the Senate. And we know we would need Manchin to help... uh, undermine the filibuster, but we know he won't do that. So it's real easy to say, yes, I'd be against that. I'd vote for that because he knows it's not going to win. He's just trying to make himself look good while not giving the Democrats or what the rest of America truly wants. It depends on what they, how they would approach it, Manchin said. I'm open to anything that makes gun sense. It's funny. That's exactly what Manchin said about the Build Back Better deal. He fucked around with it for months and months, and then he said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I suspect he'll do the same thing with this gun control thing. We keep hearing them talk about, oh, we might have a bipartisan deal. But it doesn't include universal background checks or banning AR-15 style rifles. Well, if those two things aren't in a gun control bill, Fuck them. That isn't worth shit. You see, what the Democrats, I think, are trying to do is trying to just get an inch or two inches to get it started. They're willing to take it slowly, because they have to, to try to get what they want ultimately. So they have to compromise with the Republicans who don't give a fuck about people getting shot. So... They've got the Democrats all excited about just taking these little bits and pieces and starting a gun control bill. They'll get nowhere near what they want, and hopefully the Democrats will understand that and just say, fuck yourself. Because even if they want to take this slow, they have to remember that people are dying in mass shootings fucking today. Is there one life you're willing to sacrifice so you can dick around and play politics? I don't think I would be able to identify that. But apparently Republicans and Democrats have no problem with it. So let's hope, let's fucking hope that these idiots actually come up with something. I'm you know, honestly, I'm convinced of this. What needs to happen before anything in this country gets done, build back better gun control, Roe v. Wade, any of this shit. The only way that happens is if the Democrats win big in the midterms and then for the final two years of uh, this administration, the Biden administration, then they can barely, uh, basically do pretty much whatever they want. They can take out the filibuster and make them um, simple majorities, 51 votes to win, and hopefully by that time they have 52 or 53 votes in the Senate, so it won't be a problem and you won't have to count on Joe fucking Manchin or even Christian Cinema. We need to make them irrelevant. And the only way to do that is to get more Democratic senators than we have now. When we finally do that, assuming we finally do that, that's when these changes will be made. That's when a real gun control bill will be passed. That's when Build Back Better will be passed, but not until that point. Joe Manchin can say whatever the fuck he wants to say, but he's shown us he won't do jack shit for anybody but himself. All right. Representative Jamie Raskin. On Monday, said the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol has found evidence on former President Trump that supports a lot more than incitement. Now, we know he's been investigated for incitement for the things he said on January 6 from the podium. Go down to the Capitol, fight like hell, or you're going to lose your country. That is certainly incitement. But as we all suspected. When the investigation got into it, they're finding more things to this about Donald Trump. And what might that suggest? It might suggest he had more involvement in the preparation for the insurrection, which involves conspiracy, which involves sedition, like we talked about earlier. So Jamie Raskin, who is on the January 6th committee, is saying that there's more to it with Donald Trump, and he's guilty of something more than incitement. The comment from Raskin, like I said, a member of the January 6th panel, referenced Trump's second impeachment in January of 2021 when the House voted to impeach the then president for incitement to insurrection. The January 6th panel is set to hold its first public hearing, like I said, on Thursday, where Raskin said the committee will lay out information regarding individuals who played a role in the attack, including Donald Trump. The select committee has found evidence about a lot more than the incitement here. And we're going to be laying out the evidence about all the actors who were pivotal to what took place on January 6th. This was during an interview with Washington Post Live. See, this is what I was talking about before. We've got all these sitting members of Congress. We've got Donald Trump, the Oval Office, the administration. A lot of people were involved in this January 6th committee. The January 6th committee has spent months and months and months and months investigating. They've interviewed more than a thousand people, people that were part of the administration, people that were in the White House, people that are in Congress. Trump was impeached in the House by a 232 to 197 vote with 10 Republicans joining all Democrats in sanctioning the president. Now the following month, however, the Senate acquitted him 5743. Seven Senate Republicans joined the entire Democratic caucus in voting to convict, but it wasn't enough. You needed 60 and they got 57. Don't tell me that wasn't planned up front. So the Select Committee says that Thursday's primetime hearing scheduled to begin at 8 p.m. will feature new material and witness testimony from the nearly year-long investigation, which was largely been conducted behind the scenes. We haven't seen a lot of it. Raskin on Monday told the Washington Post Live that this week's hearing will tell the story of a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election and block the transfer of power. Asked if Trump is at the center of the conspiracy, Raskin said, I think that Donald Trump and the White House were at the center of these events, so you have to assume there is evidence of that. That's the only way, really, of making sense of them all, he added. He noted, however, that people are going to have to make judgments themselves about the relative role that different people played. So the Maryland Democrat then pointed to Trump's second impeachment, in which Raskin was the lead manager for the Senate trial, Of course, the House and the Senate in a bicameral and bipartisan fashion have already determined that the former president, Donald Trump, incited an insurrection by majority votes in the House and the Senate. Although Donald Trump wasn't convicted by the requisite two-thirds majority, but commanding majority found that he had, in fact, incited the insurrection. So, like I said before, Come the January 6th committee, we know that the Proud Boys were involved in the insurrection. They have been charged with seditious conspiracy. We know that these clowns got fucking help from sitting members of Congress, the White House, the Oval Office, administration, whoever. And all that is going to come to light. We are going to find out what exactly happened, how it happened, when it happened. And when that comes out, there's going to be a lot of members of Congress and a lot of people involved with Donald Trump that are going to look very bad. So we can just sit back and wait for that. Now, the bipartisan group of senators working on a gun control bill say the framework includes an expansion of criminal background checks. But the policy may be more modest than past proposals. There have been other proposals, many proposals, and this will probably be weak. After the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, a bipartisan proposal by Senator Joe Manchin, oh, that's going to go well. And Pat Toomey, a Republican, would have expanded background checks to cover gun sales through Internet advertisements and at gun shows. As it stands now, only licensed gun dealers have to do background checks, and private sellers don't. So that didn't pass, much to Joe Manchin's chagrin. The Democrat leading this year's bipartisan negotiation said he was hoping to include comprehensive background checks like Manchin and Toomey proposed, but that he would have to sacrifice other priorities into making it happen. We're not going to put a piece of legislation at the table that's uh, going to ban assault weapons. And uh, we're not going to pass comprehensive background checks, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, said. So then why the fuck do it? Those are the two main things that need to be done in order to protect people and kids. Toomey, for his part, suggested the background check proposal the group is working on would look different from what he developed with Manchin. He described specifics over the background check proposal that's being discussed as a moving target, which means it will never be included in any bill. Murphy expressed hope that a narrow deal on guns would open the door to broader reform by showing Republicans that they're willingness to engage on this issue is politically popular see what I mean that's exactly what I told you that's what's going to happen they're going to do this little meaningless piece of shit and say look we're on the way we're going to get there and they never will as long as the Republicans have any control in Washington DC it's really frustrating We see shooting after shooting. We've got Buffalo, New York. We've got Texas. We had four this past weekend. They just keep coming. It's like anybody can do it. It's become the latest fad in this country. Get an AR-15. Go to some location. Doesn't matter what it is. A school, a church, a grocery store. Doesn't fucking matter at all. Just go there and shoot the place up. And then all the Republicans sit there with their thumbs up their asses doing absolutely nothing. We have seen some horrific shootings in this country. Horrific shootings. Remember the one in Las Vegas. Remember Sandy Hook. Go back as far as Columbine. And in all those years, those kids at Columbine are fucking parents, maybe even grandparents by now. That's how long ago it was. And nothing, not one fucking thing has been done. Now keep in mind the Republicans and the Democrats have switched off having power. So we got to look at the Democrats too as to what they've done because they have done nothing either. They maybe want to, but when they don't have the pressure on them with a shooting just happening, they focus on other things. The Republicans will do everything they can, anytime they can, to block this situation. It's very frustrating to watch. And I don't honestly see anything coming to pass in terms of a bill that will do any good until such time the Democrats have enough people in the House and the Senate to just do it themselves. You can't count on the Republicans to do shit because for 10 years they've done nothing but obstruct the the political process. All right, the last one of the day, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a 10-gun-related bills, 10-gun-related bills Monday that will bar those younger than 21 from buying or owning semi-automatic rifle bans and ban the purchase of body armor for most civilians and strengthen the state's red flag laws, among other provisions. You understand what that means? The federal government has been dicking around this for decades. Kathy Hochul has a shooting in Buffalo, New York, and within three weeks, she's got these fucking bills and she's doing something about it. Other states should take note of this. What the federal government can't possibly do, New York and Governor Kathy Hochul did it in three fucking weeks. The landmark package is one of the first major efforts by a state to pass new gun control legislation after a spate of mass shootings across the nation, including the deadly massacre that left 21 people dead in uh, Texas. Of course, Buffalo, New York had a mass shooting just days before when a gunman opened fire at a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, The shooter killed 10 people in what authorities described as a hateful domestic terroristic act. Democrats in New York legislature approved the 10-bill package of gun legislation last week. The laws will also mandate micro-stamping on some new firearms to help authorities solve gun-related crimes. And uh, Hochul said this, I'm speaking to you today as governor of a state in mourning and the citizen of a nation in crisis. For over the past few weeks, we've been overcome by grief, by heartache, by anger, Hochul said. In New York, we are taking bold, strong action. We're tightening the red flag laws to keep guns away from dangerous people. And we're raising the age of the semi-automatic weapons so no 18-year-old can walk in on their birthday and walk out with an AR-15 or two. Those days are over. So, the states of this country should take note We're seeing the Republicans doing it, individual states trying to overturn the abortion laws, and they are accomplishing it. So the only natural thing to do is states with a mind to do it, to do what Kathy Hochul and the state of New York have done. If the federal government won't act, then maybe the individual states need to take the action that they took in New York. Three weeks after the shooting, they have these 10 bills. They're going to make it tougher for people to get guns. No 18-year-old's going to walk in on his birthday and get a gun, and they accomplished that. So if the federal government can't do it, and if the Republicans think it's okay for states to override the Constitution by overturning Roe v. Wade, why not have Democratic states do the same thing with guns? Oh, the Republicans will shit their pants and say, you can't do that. And all you have to say is, yes, we can, because you fucking did it. You set the precedent, and you made it possible for us to do this. So that's what we're going to do. And it's like I've said before many times, these Republicans have no foresight. They think they can do anything, and Democrats will be afraid to do anything in return, or they just don't realize that uh, tit for tat. That's what the Democrats need to do. Every state that is a blue state, needs to pass some severe gun laws. Now, this is going to cause problems in some states, like the state here in Minnesota. I think the vast majority of people in Minnesota would want to pass those same kind of laws that they passed in New York. But we have a large uh, contingent of hunters, uh, people who shoot skeet or who target shoot or just want to have guns, and it's going to cause some uproar in this state. So I don't know what will happen. I would hope our governor, Governor Walls, has enough courage to do that. But I tell you what, our governor Walls is a politician, and he's up for re election in November. I guarantee you he ain't going to do anything about that until after the election, if at all. You know, again, politicians have a different mindset when it comes to things. I think Governor Walls, as much as the Republicans hate him, I think he has the right mindset. He was pretty progressive when it came to masks and vaccinations and handling the pandemic in this state. He did a pretty good job in my mind. Now, the Republicans will tell you he's crazy and it was all a hoax and all that shit. But in realistic terms, he did a decent job, whether he will. Do something about the gun rights? I don't know whether any other Democratic state will do something about gun rights. I'm not sure about that either. But that may be the only way we can get something done. The only way we can protect everyone from being shot at random. Protect your states from having your children shot in classrooms, your elderly shot in nursing homes, average everyday folks being shot in grocery stores. This is going to continue. It isn't getting better. We have more mass shootings in 2022 than we have days. That's more than one a day. That's fucking absurd. In a country like this, a non-third world country, a country that's supposed to be a role model for other countries around the world, we should be fucking embarrassed. It is absolutely ludicrous that we have this problem a problem that would be so easily fixed if not for the fucking Republicans. All right, we're going to wrap things up for the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for taking time to listen. I hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.